There's a, one particular type of story that's been in the news over and over again since the summer. And you have seen many headlines like this. And it's the story of a politician violating his own or her own lockdown orders uh, to, to do something. So the example of the governor in California going out to dinner after closing down other restaurants. The mayor in Denver flying to Mississippi for Thanksgiving after urging others to stay home. The mayor in Pennsylvania who banned indoor dining and then went out to eat in Maryland. Health official in England who was the chief architect of their whole lockdown procedures who after finding out that he likely had COVID drove cross country to a house at the beach to spend his quarantine um, and subsequently lost his job. And we could do over and over and over again. Why do these stories make the news? Why do they bother people so much? Regardless of actually your perspective on the lockdowns, whether you think they're a good idea or not, across the spectrum, people are bothered when they hear stories like this. Why? It's because we recoil at hypocrisy. We're bothered when somebody says one thing, in this case everybody should stay home and be locked down, and then does something different. Daniel Efren, who's an associate professor of organizational behavior at the London Business School, he summarizes it this way. People hate hypocrisy. They'll condemn the same moral failing much more harshly from someone who's been preaching a different standard. But you don't need a professor from London to tell you that, right? You know that yourself. This is one reason why our passage today is so important. When rightly understood and carefully applied, it can protect the church from that same type of accusation of hypocrisy. And we're in danger of that. Think of some other stories that have been in the news. Last spring, the president of a very large Christian university was in the news for a tangled mess of sexual immorality and likely unethical business practices. Two years ago, the pastor of a large church near Chicago was fired for abusive behavior and mishandling of church finances. Two months ago, the pastor of a large, trendy church in New York was in the news because he had an affair with a model while hiding his own identity from her. Those incidents make the news, not just in Christian circles, but but broadly, nationally, because they're prominent and because it whiffs of hypocrisy. But those are prominent names. But we can move much smaller. In small towns, within friendships, within families, in towns of 1,000 or 50,000, this same thing plays out where a man will have a reputation as a, as a womanizer, and everybody in the community knows it, and yet they also know that he serves on the board of a church. Or a man will serve on the worship team on Sundays, and yet people know that he's not paying his bills in the community and stealing financially from people. And That's a hypothetical, by the way. It's not like our worship team. <laughs> um, but those aren't like big names in the news that's small town or local communities, and yet just as, if not more, destructive because of the same charges of hypocrisy. What are we to do to avoid that? What are we to do? 
That's where our passage comes in, and it deals with the sad necessity of church discipline. And that title is, every word in that is important. We're talking about something that is sad. This is not something we delight in. It's not a pleasant topic. It's not, we should, we should be unashamed of every portion of Scripture. It's not something that we have to cringe at that it's in the Bible. But, but it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. It's necessary because the word is so clear. It's necessary because the consequences are so damaging when a church doesn't follow this. The sad necessity of church discipline. We're talking about what we do within our midst. This is not how we respond to society as a whole. In fact, near the end of our passage, we'll make that really clear. But it's what do we do with those in our midst, those that are a part of us? It's discipline. It's, It's corrective. It's not punishment. It's meant to correct Let's read this now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open the whole time we study this because like every passage, I want you to see that not just my interpretation of it or something, but the words themselves. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? For those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We'll look at this in three parts. And the first part is simply the need for discipline. The need for it. You'll notice two things come up in these first couple of verses. One is in the background and one is in the foreground. In the background is this particular sexual sin that this man was engaged in. But in the foreground... And what gets the most attention is not his sin, but the church's lack of response to it. And the need for the church to engage and pursue. And they're refusing it up till this point to do so. A little bit on the background though. Notice Paul describes this as a shocking thing. He says it is actually reported. He's stunned. When it gets back to remember, he's separated physically, geographically from them, some distance away, but it, the news gets to him of this incident. 
And he says it's a particular type of sin that does not exist even among Gentiles. Probably a better translation of that is it's not tolerated among the Gentiles. Not that it doesn't happen outside the church, but, but they don't tolerate it either. So a man is involved sexually with his stepmother would be the, what's happening here. The phrase implies that it's an ongoing thing, not simply a one-time event. A little bit culturally to understand, to, to help see why this is perhaps going on and why it would be such an issue. Um, it's common to have multi-generational homes with sons and daughters living with parents and step-parents and in-laws and these kind of multi-generational homes. And so both within Greco-Roman law and within biblical law, it was very clear that those relationships were off, they're out of bounds. Stephen Um, a uh, pastor who wrote a commentary on this, he says, these days, if you did something like this, it might land you an episode of a reality TV show, but not necessarily in jail. But in ancient times, a relationship like this was against both Jewish and Greco-Roman law because of the harmful social effects it could have on a family. Not only does it fall into this broad umbrella of sexual immorality, but it was specifically forbidden in the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 27, uh, 20. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. So it's very pointed, very specific. And this man is involved. And the church, look at verse 2, has become arrogant. It says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Probably arrogant about their tolerance and acceptance. Which in other contexts... Of course, tolerance and acceptance are good, and yet not when it comes to tolerating this, this ongoing, persistent, significant, unrepentant, known sin. It says they ought to have mourned instead. Many reasons to mourn. And perhaps you've been in a situation like this. Somebody you care about is involved in a significant, persistent, unrepentant sin. Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe it's something else. And you know the harm it's doing to them, that it will do down the road, and your heart is heavy. You mourn. And maybe you, your heart's heavy because of, you know you need to get involved and help, and that's a, a heavy thing. Maybe just because of the destructive consequences for them and others. So many reasons to mourn. But he says to them, you're not mourning, you're boasting. And that is specifically what is confronted here. It says they should have removed the man from their midst, the end of verse 2. That is a statement um, if we go to Matthew 18, we see the process. So here's the statement. The statement is, he ought to be removed from your midst. The process is in Matthew 18. So I want to turn there now. And in Matthew 18, we'll see four steps, not wooden steps, but specific steps that ought to be followed in a situation like this. And I want you to notice, too, in Matthew 18, these are the words of Jesus. I mean, 1 Corinthians is just as inspired as Matthew, but if there's any inkling in the back of your mind of like, well, that's, that's Paul, but Jesus was much more loving than that. Jesus is speaking here, and he's very specific. This is Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a process that's given here, uh, a four-step process. And this first step is simply talk to the brother or sister privately about this sin. There's two concerns of Jesus. The person's repentance and that the circle remains as small as possible for as long as possible. So it's only gradually that that circle is expanded as the pressure is gently increased. But initially he just says, hey, don't, don't go tell all your other friends about it. Go, go. Go to the person. Go to talk to them directly about their sin. Not about your personal preference that they may be violating or an assumption you're making, but something that is outward and significant and unrepentant. Outward because we can't read the hearts and minds. It, it's hard to, we, we know like pride is a sin, but it's hard to read exactly when that's happening. But when there's something that is outward, that is significant, it's harmful to them, harmful to others, it's known, it's indisputable. We're not kind of having to be the Christian detective agency trying to figure out if something's going on. But it's outward, it's significant, and most importantly, it's unrepentant. It's consistently involved in it, refusing to turn from it. It's going to become spiritual kryptonite in their life. It's going to destroy them. That's what unrepentant sin does, even for a believer. It says, go, go to them. Jonathan Lehman, in his book on church discipline, he summarizes it this way. Formal church discipline, which is what we're talking about here, is warranted when an individual seems to happily abide in known sin. Not just they struggled, but they feel guilty, they confess, they turn, they want help. You know, it's an off and on thing, but they, but they really want to change, but they're happily abiding, remaining, stuck in. There's no evidence that the Spirit is making him or her uncomfortable, other than the discomfort of getting caught. Rather, obedience to sin's desires is characteristic. In that case, we go and we pursue. And if they still don't respond, that pressure is gradually increased with off-roads all along the way for the person to repent. But we go to step two of taking one or two others along. And that's for a couple reasons. One is to, yes, gently increase the pressure, but it's also to, as a protection for the person who's being confronted, in a sense. Because perhaps what's being dealt with is not a sin, but a misunderstanding, or, or a personal preference that's being put on, or some legalistic standard. And so involving another is kind of a, a protection for that person. And so maybe this other person says, you know, I, I think maybe they're in the right. I think maybe this isn't an issue that, that needs to be addressed in this way. This shows that there's no room for a, an authoritarian leader to just come down and just kick people out of the church or something like that. This is peer-to-peer, expanding and bringing others into it for the good of the, the person who's involved. We had a situation sometime in the past that got to this point, and after more got involved, and they were able to learn more about the story, it became clear that it was perhaps an unwise decision, but... But it was complicated enough because of some various other factors that was determined not to take it further. But there had to be others involved and a willingness to talk for that person before that became clear. If it's still not responded to, that pressure is increased to where in verse 17 it says that issue is to be brought to the rest of the church body. The goal is not public embarrassment or slander or gossip. It's for the body to pray and to pursue And that may be the entire congregation. It may be 
smaller group. It may be a, a youth group or a college group. It, it depends who, who knows about it, who, who might be influenced by this, who's in the best, person, uh, the best position to help the person repent and turn. So there's room for wisdom to, to know how best to apply this. But again, the goal still is for the person to be encouraged to, to change course. Um, several years ago, there was a situation that got to this step. And you, some, some of you would have been here. It's been quite a while now. But the elders decided to bring an issue to the church body, in this case on a Sunday morning, leaving a lot of details out. Didn't mention a person by name. Didn't get into details about the issue. But gave enough detail that if people already knew about it, they, they would know what's going on. And they were encouraged to pray and, and pursue that's exactly what happened. Everybody was praying, even if they didn't know about the situation. But those that did, I was so encouraged at how many pursued. And this person responded very well. They didn't realize that so many cared about them. and The different examples that were used encouraged them to change course. The last step that's given here. Sorry, my notes are out of order. Give me just one moment. Last step that's given here is to remove the brother or sister from fellowship. Remove the brother or sister from fellowship. There's some questions maybe about what does that look like? What does that mean? And a little bit later on in our passage, it gives some more details there. But both in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Matthew 18, Jesus describes the need for that. All right, pause for one moment here. Okay, there we go. We move in our passage back to 1 Corinthians 5 to the goal. This is the need. In the first couple of verses, it gives us the need. But then it moves on to the goal. Why? Why do this? And what are we hoping to accomplish? And the goals that are given first have to do with individual believer. Notice, though, that Paul prefaces this in verse 3. He says, I and my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who so committed this as though I were present. He's separated, but just like we say when we can't be with somebody, like, ah, oh, my heart's with you. I'm with you in spirit. It's the same thing here. And he says, do this in the name of the Lord Jesus, just like in Matthew 18, if we would have read a little bit further, Jesus says, as they're engaged in that, where two or three are gathered, he is there in their midst. And the context there is discipline. He says, here, we're doing this in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, when we're assembled. And the first goal is to restore the professing believer to fellowship with God. Restore. The goal is restoration. It's not punishment. It's their spiritual health. The language is a little bit confusing. Verse 5, it says, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. The idea there is, really, it ties into what Brad talked about last week. If you were here last Sunday where Brad taught on spiritual warfare, and he talked about this war that we're involved in spiritually that often goes unseen, where the evil one is involved in trying to harm people spiritually, primarily. And a person is to be placed in a sphere by removing from some of the protective things that come with being in fellowship, so that, so that their flesh would be destroyed. That's not talking about like physical body, like uh, getting sick or something like that. Although, you know, the Lord can use those types of things. But 
But flesh, I think, is being used here in the way that it often is in the New Testament of of a sinful orientation towards sin and away from God. So that we see, for example, in Romans 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. He's not talking about his physical body. He's talking about this part of him that is in rebellion against God, this flesh, this sinful orientation away from God. And that is what we're wanting to see change. So somebody that is persistently stuck in some type of unrepentant, significant sin and sees no problem with it, they need to be woken up from that. And so the hope is that this gradually increasing pressure would awaken them from that type of spiritual amnesia. But still the goal is restoration. The verse I skipped over a moment ago, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, that's what we're talking about. Somebody's caught in a trespass. Not caught as in, ha, I caught you. But they're stuck. And they need to be restored. And you're to do that with a spirit of gentleness. Not with pride, not with arrogance, not with harshness, but with gentleness. Persistent growing pressure to urge the person to turn. That's the first, that's the first goal that's mentioned here. But there's another that gets time. And it's the need to protect the church from the spread of sin. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Leaven, it's, it's like yeast. It's probably more of like a sourdough type bread. So one of the quarantine hobbies for many people this year was baking bread. Did any of you like start baking bread this year, maybe for the first time? Yeah, I see a few hands up, right? Um, this is probably like a sourdough type mix, but it's similar to what we think of with, with yeast, the way yeast works its way through the bread. So I have here a little bit of yeast, so tiny. And this is just one moment. It's small enough that, especially if your eyes aren't 100%, you probably can't even see the yeast here, right? And yet, you know, if you were to mix it with some warm water, add it to the flour, the dough, that eventually it would spread through all the dough, right? Even though it's a relatively small amount. And Paul is saying it's exactly what sin does within a body. It has a tendency to spread when not dealt with. The language used here is one that his audience would have recognized as coming from the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover celebration that was part of Israel's history. Verse 7, it says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. The language here has to do with uh, Jewish celebration where to remember God's deliverance of them from Egypt, the people yearly would remove all the leaven, all this, this sourdough starter, if you will, from their home for a week, all unleavened bread, as a reminder of the way God delivered them and removed them from Egypt, um, probably also as a practical health benefit. Uh, but they would do this leading up to the Passover. A few years ago, we had a gal from a group called Jews for Jesus, a Jewish Christian group that came and did a presentation on the, the Passover and the significance of this. And she talked about this cleaning and removing all the leaven from the home and, and how the, 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 the wife and mother of the home would, would go through and she would clean all the leaven, just you know, sweeping, wiping every little nook and cranny of the home, leaving one piece for the husband to find. And then he would come and pick it up and throw it out and say, there, I have cleansed the home from all leaven. Uh, where really it was 
the wife that had cleansed the home from all leaven, and he just did this ceremonial part of it. But it was a practice. It was a way to, as an illustration of this leaven as sin and the need to cleanse our lives from it. But I want you to notice the language for how it goes on. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Saying, clean out the old leaven. Take, take steps to remove sin from your life. But you're already unleavened. It's interesting. You need to do this because you already are. And it's talking about the way that as believers we've been forgiven for all sin. Because Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Jesus died in our place. He took our sin on himself. All of it's been paid for. So if we trust in him we're completely forgiven. That's why he says you are already unleavened. But now we need to pursue it practically in our life by the enabling work of the Spirit. So he says you're already unleavened, so therefore take these steps to remove these things from your life. The third motivation here is hinted at in verse 1. Preserve the reputation of Christ in the community. Yes, it's to... Restore the individual person out of care for them. Yes, it is to protect the rest of the body, but, but also the world is watching what Christians do. And when we fail to act on something that is outward, significant, unrepentant, known, the name of Christ is so often tarnished. Here, here's one example of this, and it has to do with uh, one of the incidents I mentioned earlier of a prominent uh, president of a, of a Christian university. And this is... A quote from a, not a Christian, a guy named Stan Van Gundy. If you're a basketball fan, you probably know him as a coach and commentator. Very outspoken guy. And he's commenting on this. He talks about this person. He says, a Christian leader is corrupt. Shocking. I thought we could trust Christians to be more righteous. There is no connection between religious belief and morality. None. Christians are no more or no less moral than atheists. When, when Christians fail to act doing battle against sin in our own life, pursuing and caring for one another, this is what a watching world concludes. That there's just no difference. On one hand, in our nature, there is no difference. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We're, we're all vulnerable. But there ought to be change and growth and pursuit of Christ and pursuit of holiness that, that is distinct the passage moves on from here to some common misunderstandings. Misunderstandings that Paul is confronting and ones that we need to consider. Look at verse 9. It says, I wrote in you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. He says, I'm not saying stay away from all sinful people. Because that's, that's the world we live in. And, and to engage that world, we're to pursue that world with the gospel. So we can't remove ourselves from anybody who would sin. It says, but, actually, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Uh, associate is, it's used of a vine wrapping its way uh, around a tree, intertangled together so that they're virtually indistinct. That's the idea here. It says, no, it's not, I'm not talking about people in the world, but a, a so-called brother. And he uses that phrase because this is a person who's claiming Christ. Whether they are or not, he's not making an evaluation of there. But 
They're claiming to be a believer, and they're engaged in a significant outward unrepentant sin, and we're not to be entangled there. We're not to mix together in that way. After this formal process has been undertaken with patience and time and gentleness, a person not to be viewed as an enemy, but there's a need for, for separation. I want you to notice this list that's used, though, in verse 11. It's not an exhaustive list, a complete list, but an ex- example-type list. And there's a few things here I want to point out. It says, with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, that's a broad term for sexual sin, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler. The word for reviler there in the Greek dictionary defining this, it says, one who intentionally abuses another with speech, a reviler, a slanderer, or an abusive person. Definite implications for what we call domestic violence. Uh, a man or woman who is just, phys- or just verbally lashing out repeatedly as a reviler of their spouse, this word would speak to that and say that that is serious and must be pursued. A, a drunkard is the next one that's mentioned. The Bible doesn't condemn drinking alcohol as a whole, but it does speak very strongly against drunkenness, especially considering the rippling effects that that often has as drunkenness often leads to so many other forms of abuse and harm and neglect. So I just want to pause there briefly and say, if you're in a domestic violence situation, this instructs the church to care deeply about that. And, and to help and pursue with accountability and consequences. And that is not something you are to suffer through alone or feel ashamed by or feel like you can't get help. These words would very specifically apply to that. And yet, as I mentioned, too often we switch this, these points that Paul is making. And we feel a need to judge the world harshly and separate from the world and not connect with any who don't know Christ And then within our midst, we overlook things that ought not to be overlooked. How does this work its way out? Well, if you're a a student here, middle school, high school, even through college, it's okay and it's good to pursue friendships with those who don't know Christ. In fact, when I was 16, I'm so glad that a couple of guys on my basketball team pursued a friendship with me because I was far from the Lord. And yet, through their words, through their example, I ended up coming to know Christ that year. So I'm so glad for that. Be careful about the direction that influence is happening. If you have significant friendships, people who don't know Christ, are, are they influencing you away from the Lord or are you influencing them to the Lord? That's a big question to ask. But this isn't saying to stay away from, from people like that or something. It's, it's no, it's to pursue with the gospel but be mindful of within our midst and within your own life what is happening. I want to wrap up here with a few things. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be wondering about this. You know, perhaps somebody invited you or, you know, you just, you just decided to come and you think, man, is this loving? I thought Christians were supposed to be accepting. Uh, let me ask, though, if that, if that is kind of what you're wondering about, do you also struggle when you hear about hypocrisy w- within Christianity? And, and if so, this is the mechanism given for the church to police its own. So just like doctors and lawyers and dentists and counselors have codes of conduct and mechanisms to confront unethical behavior within their midst, this is what's given to the church to work against this 
behavior that could be so harmful to the individual and to the body as a whole. Turn to a different application, though. If you are a, if you are a Christian, but your rep- relationship to the church is such that discipline is unlikely, either because you're unattached to any local church or your life is such a closed book that nobody would know, even if it is outward, significant, unrepentant, nobody would know because nobody really knows you, then you are missing out on this God-given mechanism for your protection, for your good, and it's a dangerous place to be. I, I need this type of accountability. We all do. We all need people who know us and would be willing to speak into the situation. I... I read horror stories of pastors who go off the rails on a long slide towards disobedience, and yet nobody is in a position to know that person or to share that authority to pursue. That would be a dangerous place to be in. I'm so glad that in our body, authority is shared among a board of elders with other men whose livelihood has nothing to do with the church body, and yet we share authority, and they would have access to my life and I'm just a part of the body, so you would as well, how dangerous would it be to not have that? If you're struggling with this passage, I want you to ask yourself why. Is it because you disagree with some way I've interpreted it? And that's fine, but, but what does it mean then? If you think I've handled something incorrectly, what does it mean? Because it's in here, and Matthew 18 is in here, Does it not seem loving? Perhaps there's still something unclear that I failed to make clear. If you want to dig into this more, I'd be happy to talk to you more. I also did a message when we were going through Matthew a couple years ago on Matthew 18 with a little more detail. So you can look there. That's on our website. I also taught through Galatians 6 about four or five years ago. And that would be on our website as well if you'd like to dig into that. But I want to end with two brief stories. Two incidents that happened... In my memory, the very first year I started attending University Bible Church more than 20 years ago as a college student, they may have been within a couple years of each other, but it seems like it was the same year. Uh, Remember, I'd only been a believer for a couple years at that point. I came to Christ in high school. And it was one of my first Sundays at UBC. And the steps of discipline had been followed with a particular individual, and it was to the last stage where... uh, he needed to be removed from fellowship. And so Pastor Mike, who was my predecessor here, t- taught on Matthew 18 on church discipline. And then afterwards, the elders got up and read a letter about the situation and the steps that were being taken. And he was removed from, from fellowship. I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. But, but it was so clearly biblical. Um, the passage was so clearly being followed. There was no argument to be made. And In fact, I knew the family in some ways, and so I was glad that something was being done. I'll tell you, though, from then on out, anytime church discipline was taught on, I was just like I was waiting for the letter to follow, (laughs) right? I was waiting for, and if you're waiting for a letter after this, there's no no letter after this, right? It's just our next passage. Um, The next incident happened around the same time, and it was somebody that I didn't know, but who had been disciplined years earlier. And she was now repenting. And she stood up before the body because it was a, such a known public thing, not, not to me, but to those who had been around. And she stood up and she read a letter that she had written expressing gratitude for the church for pursuing her, expressing her repentance and desire to turn and be welcomed back in. And she was, and now more than 20 years later, she's still walking with Christ faithfully 
those two incidents have stuck with me and reminded me of the sad necessity of church discipline. Let's pray.